Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the use of robotic surgery for colon and rectal cancers with Dr. George Yavorek. Dr. Yavorek is a clinical instructor of surgery specializing in gastrobariatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, George, you know, maybe we can start off a little bit by talking about screening for colon cancer. I understand that guidelines have recently changed in that regard. Yes, they have. We've seen over the last 10 years that the incidence of colon cancer in younger individuals has increased by about 2% per year over the last five years or so. So the recommendations have changed to uh, start screening at age 45 rather than age 50. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about what that screening entails, because, you know, there seems to be a potpourri of different screening options for people, and um, they may be wondering about what screening technique is best for them. There are several options, and most people would agree that colonoscopy is the best uh, screening tool because it can also be therapeutic at the time. If you do find a polyp or a larger lesion, it can be removed or biopsied at the same time. Other options would include fecal cult blood testing, which is not as specific. There is now um, DNA testing, Cologuard, which is rather specific for advanced uh, lesions, tumors, or large polyps. But when you get to smaller polyps, the sensitivity is not very good. It is good for people who don't want to go through a colonoscopy or perhaps because of medical reasons can't do that. Um, other options might include a what they call a CT colography, which is essentially a virtual colonoscopy. The sensitivity is roughly equivalent to a colonoscopy. However, if something is found, then you have to go through a colonoscopy to have it removed or biopsied. And so it sounds like, you know, there's so many factors that are involved that, uh, you know, for people to try to parse out what's the best technique for them, that's probably a discussion that they have with their family doctor. Yes, either that or a gastroenterologist or a colorectal surgeon, someone who does screening and can kind of tailor the screening program to the individual. And so now that the screening guidelines have changed and they've recommended starting screening at 45, is that for average risk people or is that for people who may have other predisposing factors? No, that, that's for average risk people, um, individuals. People with a higher risk actually would start sooner. A typical recommendation for someone with a first degree relative who has had colon cancer is to start at least 10 years uh, younger than when that cancer was diagnosed. So if the person has a, a parent who was, had colon cancer at about age 50, they should start at age 40. Uh, other High-risk situations might be someone with Crohn's disease or inflammatory bowel disease or someone with a history of um, a polyposis syndrome that would increase their risk of uh, developing polyps and possibly cancer. 
And so when should those people be screened? I mean, presumably people with Crohn's disease or, or other forms of IBD or apolyposis syndrome likely would have already had a colonoscopy. But um, when would be the bare minimum time that they should actually start getting regular screening for cancer? Well, typically when they're first seen and diagnosed with the problem, uh, their, whatever their condition might be, they're likely going to have an initial colonoscopy to evaluate the situation. And then future surveillance colonoscopies would be based on that. So typically, if someone were diagnosed with Crohn's in their 20s, it's likely they would have a colonoscopy at that time and then basically go from there on an individual basis. But typically every five to 10 years, if there were no uh, significant clinical symptoms. And so... At the time of colonoscopy, you mentioned that colonoscopy can be both diagnostic and therapeutic. Talk a little bit more about the therapeutic options when you, you're doing a colonoscopy and you, you find a lesion. First of all, what, what kind of lesions do we find in the colon? And secondly, um, how can colonoscopy be therapeutic in that regard? So the whole purpose of screening colonoscopies were to... Um, <clears throat> evaluate the person to see if they have developed any um, polyps, which we know are precursors to most of the colon cancers. And most of those polyps can be removed at the time of colonoscopy and therefore never go on to progress to a cancer. We have seen that the incidence of um, colon cancer has dropped over the last few decades, and we attribute it to the screening colonoscopies and polypectomies that have removed those potential future cases of cancer. So there are several types of polyps, and they vary in size. Most of them can be removed endoscopically. Some, when they get larger, when they're about two centimeters or an inch, get more difficult to be removed than should be um, removed by someone who has advanced um, endoscopic skills. Um, these have the potential to have malignant transformation, uh, what we call dysplasia or possible early invasion, and might need more advanced techniques to remove. Okay. And presumably some of these lesions may be sessile or flat. And colonoscopy, even if you can't remove a polyp, can certainly biopsy potential cancers. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. If it is too large to remove safely endoscopically, then it is generally biopsied and marked with ink as a tattoo and referred for surgery. We think that these polyps should be completely removed again because of their potential to progress to cancer. Sessile lesions being flat are much more difficult to remove, and if they do develop invasion, uh, malignant invasion, uh, they're much more likely to uh, spread faster than a more polypoid uh, lesion. Okay. So let's suppose, you know, you've done a colonoscopy, you've either found a polyp that you couldn't remove completely, or you found a sessile lesion um, that you've biopsied. In either of those cases, if cancer was found, that would mean that the patient moves next to surgery. Is that right? Typically, yes. 
again, depending on the skill and what your <clears throat> feeling of the whole lesion is, some of those can be, there are very advanced techniques where the endoscopist will take the first layer off inside um, called an endoscopic mucosal resection, which is um, adequate for very early stage cancers. But in general, most of those would be referred to a surgeon for removal of the whole area and evaluation of the regional lymph nodes. Now, before you do that, are there any kinds of advanced imaging tests that are required or blood tests to help you get an idea of the extent of disease? Well, certainly if you have a diagnosis of invasive cancer rather than something that's questionable or early staged, uh, you're, you're going to um, image them with a CAT scan uh, to evaluate the liver for possible metastatic disease. It's been fairly commonplace to also um, do a CAT scan of the chest to looking for possible spread to the lungs, although that's much more common in rectal cancer than colon cancer. Um, and blood tests, the CEA or carcinogenic embryonic antigen is not produced by all tumors, but generally, if you have a diagnosis of cancer, you will check that. If it's elevated, it can be used as a marker later to follow the patient to see if there's recurrence. And so presumably, if you've caught this cancer early because you started screening per the guidelines, um, and now you, you go and you have all of these tests and it doesn't look like there's cancer anywhere else, the next step is to remove that part of the colon that's got the cancer in it and evaluate, as you say, the regional lymph nodes. Now, I understand that surgical techniques have improved over the last several decades, and, and this can now be done in a minimally invasive way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So minimally invasive surgery, the revolution started probably in the late 80s and uh, around 1990. We all started doing gallbladders that way and reduced the incision size, made recovery a lot faster, a lot less pain, and the patients were much more satisfied. That translated to colon surgery in the early 90s, and there were several um, trials to determine whether or not that minimally invasive surgery was equal to conventional open surgery, and the cost trial in 2004 and follow-up uh, of those patients over a long period of time proved that the um, cancer surgery was the same, whether it was done minimally invasive or open, so the oncologic results were the same. Minimally invasive surgery, whether it be laparoscopic or robotic-assisted, performs the same surgery through several small incisions, which hurts a lot less. The recovery is faster. Um, the patients are more satisfied with it. Bowel function tends to return faster. And um, as several studies over the years have shown, that is oncologically the same as open surgery. The one of the benefits, though, is for people with more advanced surgery, uh, more advanced cancer, excuse me, is that since they recover faster, they feel better, they're much more likely to go on and have chemotherapy if they need it. After recovering from big open surgery, sometimes the people have had trouble and they just never get uh, healthy enough to receive their adjuvant chemotherapy. 
So it sounds like, you know, we've moved into an era of, of minimally invasive uh, surgery for colon cancer, much like we have for gallbladder surgery. But you mentioned two terms. One is laparoscopic and one is robotic assisted. Can you help our audience kind of understand the difference between the two? Sure. Laparoscopy is something that's been around for a long time. And as I mentioned, the translation to more broad applications began in the early 90s and then into colorectal surgery. But basically what that is, is surgery inside the abdomen done through several small incisions where you have instruments inserted. It's very good when you don't have to make a bigger incision to take a specimen out. In colon surgery, you have to make an incision that's probably two to three inches in size to get the piece of colon out with the lymph nodes and the tumor. So that does have some pain associated with it. Um, when you do laparoscopic hernias and you only have three or four little incisions, there's much less pain. Robotic assisted is attaching the robotic system to those instruments and that allows you much more dexterity, especially in a smaller confined location like the pelvis when you're operating for rectal cancer. Your visualization, both laparoscopically and robotic assisted, is a lot of times much better than open because you have magnification, you have light, a light source that's right down there in this deep, dark hole, and you have uh, your really dexterous instruments in, in a small space. And so certainly both laparoscopic and robotic seem to be an advance uh, over open surgery and, and allow you to get into uh, small spaces with good visualization that you might not have had before and allow patients to get home sooner. We're going to uh, talk more about robotic surgery and compare that to laparoscopic surgery and talk about what happens after the colon cancer surgery right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about robotic surgery for colon and rectal cancers with my guest, Dr. George Yavoric. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting, even after decades of use, can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. George Yavoric. We're talking about treating patients with colon cancer with robotic surgery. Now, right before the break, we were talking about this whole evolution in minimally invasive surgery that really helps patients with colon cancer get that colon resected with minimal uh, intervention, uh, shorter hospital stays, less pain, and so on. But George, the question that I often have is this. In terms of those metrics, getting home faster, amount of pain, 
blood loss, how long the operation is, uh, and cost, how does robotic surgery stack up to laparoscopic surgery, which uh, you know, we all know is is has a number of advantages over open surgery. So, in, the big thing I think would be patient satisfaction, and patient satisfaction between both laparoscopic and robotic surgery is pretty equal, because to them it's minimally invasive. In terms of um, Oncologic outcomes, again, the same thing. They've looked at that compared to open, and obviously the, the standard is open surgery, but the oncologic outcomes are the same in terms of all the parameters that we look at. Um, some of the other things you mentioned, though, were the big knock on robotic surgery is cost and the expense of the equipment. What happens with that is it can be actually cost-effective because the patient's tend to stay in the hospital less time. If you have them on what we call an ERAS, E-R-A-S is Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Protocol, which typically a lot of specialties are using for urology, gynecology, colorectal surgery. And that goes from the pre-op preparation through the surgery and anesthesia and into the post-operative period. These patients are spending less time in the hospital. Uh, they're back to normal faster. They're feeling better. And there are actually less complications um, and problems which cut down on hospital costs. So those are things that can uh, negate the extra expense of the robotic surgery and actually make it cost effective. So let me push back a little. Just, um, you know, understandably, ERAS protocols would improve all of those metrics, whether the surgery was open. Patients who are on an ERAS protocol who have open surgery would do better than people who are on an ERAS protocol who, or, or sorry, people who have open surgery who are not on an ERAS protocol. So I can understand how that ERAS protocol can reduce the length of stay for patients who are having robotic surgery. But given that robotic surgery and laparoscopic surgery are both minimally invasive and robotic surgery is much more expensive, if you have patients who have laparoscopic surgery who are on an ERAS protocol and patients who have robotic surgery who are on an ERAS protocol, so ERAS is a given across the board, um, are there really any differences in terms of length of stay, length of hospital uh, time, length of surgical procedure, blood loss that are different between the laparoscopic group and the robotic group that would tend to favor one over the other? So if you look at it across the board, just comparing laparoscopic for, to robotic surgery, Typically, the outcomes are going to be very similar. They're going to be about the same. The robotic surgery would be more expensive because of the equipment. Part of the problem becomes the skill level of the surgeon where robotic surgery makes it easier for most surgeons to do more complex operations. Um, the an inexperienced laparoscopic surgeon could probably do about the same things that a robotic surgeon does. Um, and there's most people are well versed in both, but I think you're correct in that going across both procedures, um, 
that you're, it's going to be less expensive for a laparoscopic surgeon and the results are pretty much going to be the same. Part of the idea behind the robotic surgery is that it takes more open uh, cases and makes them minimally invasive. Across the country, at least 50% of the colectomies are done, are still done uh, through a traditional incision. Only about 50% are done um, minimally invasively. And of those, the vast majority are still done laparoscopically. It's somewhere between 5 and 10% are done robotically. The other 40% are done laparoscopically, and the other 50% are still done through an open incision. So the penetration is increasing for robotic surgery. But back to the question, I think that um, all things given, you know, certainly laparoscopic surgery is more cost effective than robotic surgery. Yeah. So I guess what I'm getting from you is that robotic surgery may be a good option for some cases where you really don't think that you would be able to do this laparoscopically, but given the dexterity that uh, you can get, particularly low down in the pelvis, which would otherwise mandate an open surgery, robotic surgery might have a, a, an advantage in that realm over laparoscopic. Is that right? Personally, yes, I agree with that. I and, and complex surgeries, so not only for colon cancer, but if, if it's a complex cancer that may be attached to the bladder or the uterus, um, and even non-cancer surgery like complex diverticular disease, I think the robot is an advantage over laparoscopic surgery. And the, the one thing is the conversion rate um, is lower for robotic surgery. So if you look at it in that light, um, robotic surgery has an advantage over laparoscopic surgery because the conversion from minimally invasive to open surgery, which adds more to cost and actually increases hospital stay for someone who is done through an open incision to begin with, um, the robot does decrease the chance of conversion and therefore is an advantage in those situations. So, you know, with people who have expertise in both laparoscopic and robotic surgery, how do you decide which procedure to offer your patients? Or are you offering all of them one particular route as a first choice? Well, I think it depends on a few things. Depends on the complexity, location of the tumor. If I feel that, especially rectal cancer down in the pelvis, um, I really like the robot down there for that. Again, because of the confined space and the ability to get down there with good visualization. Um, if the person may be someone who um, I'd like to get in and out of surgery a little bit faster, um, an older person with a lot of uh, health issues, I may choose to do it laparoscopically uh, because it generally the times for those surgeries are less. So it's an individual basis. I don't think I offer all my patients one or the other. And the other question that many of our listeners may have, especially thinking about, you know, the cost of robotic surgery is, is it covered by insurance? Um, generally speaking, there's no cost to the patient. If there is a cost, the hospital ends up absorbing it because they can't pass that on to the patient. The insurance company doesn't always reimburse more for a specific procedure, but the hospital has figured out a way to, in terms of um, making things more efficient, to make these costs effective. And so, uh, and so, it sounds like if 
if to the patient costs are all equal uh, and oncologic outcomes are all equal, then it sounds like the real cost is to the healthcare system, and and that's something that um, healthcare systems will will need to figure out. Now, if during that staging workup that you did before the 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 uh, surgery itself. Let's suppose you did find um, a little metastasis to the liver. Um, can you take that out at the same time as you do the colon surgery uh, with the robot? Yes, you can. Uh, the hepatobiliary surgeons are doing uh, liver resections uh, laparoscopically and robotically. So you can do that if it's uh, the right thing to do at that time. Solitary metastases can be handled in several ways. Um, sometimes it's removed at the same time of the surgery. Sometimes they get chemotherapy first to see if it uh, progresses or regresses or new lesions pop up. So, but it can be done minimally invasively, yes. And so it sounds like, you know, there have been so many great advances on the surgical front. Once patients go home, um, you mentioned that one of the advantages of minimally invasive surgery is that they can actually get on to their uh, adjuvant systemic therapy, their chemotherapy, uh, a little bit quicker thereafter. Um, some older patients uh, may have difficulty in that postoperative period recovering, and so delay or potentially uh, uh, dismiss um, their their chemotherapy. Can you talk a little bit about um, whether all patients with colon cancer require chemotherapy after surgery and whether there have been any advances in that regard? So not all patients require chemotherapy. Uh, cancer is staged, stage one through four, obviously one being very early and those patients generally surgery alone uh, is curative between 90-95% of the time, they do not require adjuvant chemotherapy. It does not add to their um, cure rate. Stage 2 is the big gray zone. Uh, that's a very large stage, and some of those patients, depending on individual tumor characteristics, uh, may benefit from chemotherapy. They may be at a higher risk to develop recurrence, and that's something that has really progressed over the last 10 years are evaluation of individual tumors and what those individual tumor characteristics mean in terms of um, prognosis. Stage three, there are lymph nodes involved and those people are all candidates for chemotherapy, uh, which has been shown to have a significant improved survival. And stage four is distant metastases and um, Generally, chemotherapy is, in, um, is used there, too, also in more of a palliative uh, manner. And, and as you, you kind of mentioned and briefly talked about in that stage two discussion, have there been advances in terms of chemotherapy? I mean, the robotic surgery, getting to minimally invasive surgery really seems to uh, be advantageous in terms of fine-tuning surgery to an individual patient. And you talked a little bit about how you tailor the surgical management according to patients. Has that, has that filtered into the, the medical oncology management as well? Um, yes, it has. Uh, there are, most people will get a combination of, um, of chemotherapy drugs. 
uh, usually two or three, and generally it's tapered to their situation, their age, their medical comorbidities, and also the tumor itself. As I mentioned, they do several um, analysis of the tumor and there are some studies that can tell you whether or not they will respond to a particular um, chemotherapeutic agent. And as with a lot of medicine, that's gotten rather involved and complex over the last few years. And most people will end up with an oncology consultation and the medical oncologist will taper the therapy toward that. Now, the third arm of the stool is always radiation. Do, do colorectal patients require radiation after surgery as well? So radiation is generally used for rectal cancer, not colon cancer. Uh, when it's out of the pelvis, there's generally not a role for radiation. It's when it's in the fixed confines of the pelvis radiation is used. It's not used all the time. And we do a lot of workup and staging beforehand and a lot of times radiation is given with chemotherapy before surgery for rectal cancer to shrink the tumor a lot of times and allow uh, preservation of the sphincters so you don't have a permanent uh, ostomy, a permanent bag. Dr. George Yavorek is a clinical instructor of surgery specializing in gastrobariatrics at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.